reconciliation is going to be hard. If we are looking at a situation of an assault, let's say a rape, our first response is not how do you reconcile. Our first response is how do we protect. Do not expect a person who suffered in that situation to be ready to do that. In this All Things Reconciled series, we are focusing in on the war in Ukraine. This war is dominating our headlines and it's a cause for great concern, no matter where you live. It seems this is touching everyone, everywhere. So this series will engage the war in Ukraine from different angles to inspire and equip you to be a peacemaker and reconciler in the everyday stuff and assignments of life. And we're very pleased to have Ruslan Maluta with us. Ruslan is a Ukrainian living currently in Switzerland, and he leads the World Evangelical Alliance Trust Ukrainian Task Force. Welcome, Ruslan. We're very pleased to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jeanette. It's good to be with you. Thank you, Ruslan. Can you tell us a bit about who you are and what life looks like for you right now? Well, uh, my life now looks quite different from what it used to be before the war started. I'm from Ukraine. Uh, we live in Kyiv. I still would like to say that we live in Kyiv because I believe that uh, what's happening now is a temporary uh, arrangement, although I have no idea how long it's going to last. Uh, but I've been in ministry all my life. I came to Christ back in late 80s, actually, when it was still Soviet Union, just before the Soviet Union collapsed. My mom led me to Christ, and I got involved in church life since I was uh, 11. <laughs> and basically since that time, uh, I've been involved in some kind of ministry in various ways as a pastor, uh, teaching, and also spent quite a few years focusing on orphans and vulnerable children. And then uh, recently, for the past several years, I've been working a lot with various global networks, including World Evangelical Alliance. So, so my life before the war was, we lived in Ukraine, but I traveled a lot, I worked globally, and despite having been to a number of places, there are many countries around the world that I like, Ukraine is my home, I love the country, Kyiv is a beautiful city, and uh, it's just really hard to, uh, to not be there, and it's really hard to see what's going on in our country. How long have you been in Switzerland at this point, Rieslund? Uh, it's been uh, almost four months. I have a large family. My wife, Anna, and I, we have five children, five boys. Our youngest is six, and our oldest is 19, and we have three teenagers in between. So our household is a fairly active, vibrant. <laughs> There's lots of things going on. We came to Switzerland at the end of January, and it's kind of an interesting story because of course, as you may remember, there were lots of conversations on the news, I mean, generally speaking, about what might happen. But uh, to be honest, uh, I don't think there were many people in Ukraine who actually thought that a big war will happen. I always thought that it's possible, but I also thought that it's unlikely. So we have not kind of really been anticipating it. Uh, but at the same time, at some point, when my wife, Anna, and I, we started thinking and praying about this, both of us got this sense that we need to go. So not because we were certain that uh, the war is going to happen, 
But as much as we could discern God's guidance, I know it's always a big question and a tricky question. How do you discern? How do you see where God is leading you or your family in a specific situation? But now in the hindsight, I can say that that's what it was. And uh, I'm not saying that everyone should have done that. For me, it was also a lesson that God can say different things to people in a similar situation, depending on your specific context or sort of what God is doing in your life or through your life. But that's what happened in our case. Uh, We got this clear sense. It was fairly quick. Within a week, we kind of completely changed the course of of everything. I've just to give you an idea how uh, how unusual it was. I actually had tickets to fly to the U.S. for work uh, that week. And the more we were praying and thinking, the first realization was like, I probably shouldn't be going to the U.S., so I canceled my trip. <laughs> then the next one, uh, as we are praying and thinking, Anya comes and says, Rosanna, I'm getting this growing feeling that, that we need to go. And, and we had a place. We have a good friend here in Switzerland, and she said that we are welcome to come, and she was actually encouraging us to come. So long story short, we found ourselves driving to Switzerland with the whole family at the end of January and kind of not really knowing why we are doing that. <laughs> so that's the, that's the story. And just one other thing, I remember this last evening that we had at home. I mean, we gathered together, of course, we invited our parents and we were just talking and just, just spending time together. And I remember uh, looking at Anya and we were like, it's strange because we might, most likely probably just going to come back in a few weeks, you know, and would consider this a bit of a strange experience. But there is a chance that we may never come back. So that was a very strange uh, kind of feeling, looking at this kind of range of possibilities. So that's how we ended up here. And four weeks later, uh, the war started. The full-blown war started in Ukraine. I'm wondering, Ruslan, what a story for you to go kind of without knowing what was ahead for you as a family in the sense of obedience to God's call. As you look at the situation now, what is more clear for you about why you are where you are? I think, again, I, I want to be careful with saying, or God told us this, or if, but in the hindsight, it is more clear. You're right. So I would say that it does look like God had some things in mind, and in order to do that, he sort of sent us out of the country. And I remember talking because, I mean, we like to seek advice, so I remember talking with some of my good friends, and none of them also thought that there will be a big war. Uh, Everyone kind of felt that something is brewing, something is coming. And when the war started, those were horrible days. I mean, I think every... Every Ukrainian remembers February 24th, you know, 5 a.m. And I remember after that, people like, oh, it's so good that you left early, like you were, you know, you were kind of euphoric, saw that. And I was saying, no, that's not really what happened. We did not know what's going to happen. We just sensed that that's what we need to do. And I remember gathering our kids one evening, uh, maybe during the first week of the war, and we shared with them that, you know, we are, not, we are here not because we are better than the others, not because we are smarter than the others. We are here simply because we tried to sense what God wanted us to do, and then we did it. But there are other people who did 
pretty much the same process and God told them to stay. So I just wanted them to see that the point here is not to leave or not to stay, but try to discern as much as we can what God wants us to do in our specific situation. And I think, uh, of course, it was probably easier for us than for many other families in Ukraine, although we are a large family, so not logistically speaking. Logistically, it's quite a big undertaking to take five kids and, you know, draw halfway across the continent, if not more. But because I work remotely and children were studying online, so it was uh, not a, such a huge disruption as it may seem, at least when it was still before the war. But now looking back, I would say that if he stayed we probably would still be able to do things just like many other families and many other uh, you know, leaders are doing. But there is probably no way we would have been able to do what we did by being here. It's still hard. I think we, to this day we have a bit of a survivor's guilt. Uh, it's kind of a mixed feeling of on one side being grateful that we were spared of some of the harsher realities of war, like we were not under bombings. So we we don't have experience, the kind of experience that most of our countrymen have, you know, being under bombings, hearing explosions, seeing this kind of stuff. Just to give you an idea, our home is about 20 minutes away from Bucha and Irpin. So uh, the, the war, the underground war never came to our town. It stopped about 10 minutes, literally 10 or 15 minutes drive from our town. And because of that, Basically, there was not, I mean, we, our, our area has not, has not seen all these terrible things or a lot of those terrible things that you've seen on the news with European and Bucha, but it still was bombed regularly. I mean, I have a picture with the smoke going up about 500 meters from our home. So we have, we have not experienced this directly. So on one side, I'm grateful because that's certainly not something that, for example, children need to know. Like we have, you know, we have many friends, we know many people. So right now we also have my mother-in-law living with us and she's been through a lot of this. So while I'm, great, while I'm grateful that we have not experienced that, but at the same time it also makes us like, again, this survivor's guilt is real. <laughs> like while cognitively I know that that's okay, I mean, we shouldn't be uh, thinking like that or feeling that, but it's still there. Uh, but what helps, I think, is just knowing this, having this foundation that what we try to do is to do what God told us to do or to do what God, how God guided us. And now, three months after the war started, I think I'm just grateful that we could be small instruments in God's hands as He's working through the church, responding to this huge tragedy. Thank you so much about sharing about the survivor's guilt. It's, it's a term that a lot of people, they're aware of, but don't often mention and you were mentioning earlier about the lesson that God gave you on how God can say different things in different situations. Your family had a situation where you could leave, but you're still a father in this situation and your children are experiencing a lot of emotions as well. How are you able to parent through this process? I mean, it's hard because the war, again, going back to that first day, the way we learn about it, our oldest son came to our bedroom, he woke us up, and he said that the war started. Uh, and and that, was, that was a surreal experience, because if you remember, it started in quite a shocking way with, uh, with Russian planes and bombs just uh, going off all over the country. 
And while it was enough shock in itself, although not a complete surprise, like it's not like we were not, uh, I mean, this, this was in range of possibilities. But I think what we did not anticipate was how big it will get from the very beginning. I'm originally from Western Ukraine, from a city called Ivana from Kivsk, and it was a huge shock to see airport, the airport in that city being bombed within the first couple of hours of the war. And we are talking about city that is much closer to Budapest, Vienna than Kiev, <laughs> relatively speaking. So, so, so it was just looking at that. I remember us, like Anna and me, talking how how are we gonna tell tell this to kids. Like, how do you tell your children that there is a war happening at home? So from that day, it's been both difficult, but also just a way for us to come closer together as a family. And of course, I mean, our children, they have friends from school, they have friends from church, so they've been in touch with them. So they've, while we were not there, but they kind of lived this with their, uh, with their friends. My wife is actively involved in, children, in the women's ministry. She actually leads what we call a women's club. So she has a ten, 10 ladies that they meet regularly. And also it was both encouraging to see how she can serve them and you know be in touch with them, but also hard because she kind of lived through those experiences with them. And as the war was unfolding, many of them, they, I mean, they're all local uh, from Kiev area, they were going through this, like, should we leave? Some left right away. I remember us getting messages in the middle of the night. We are being bombed. We are scared. We don't know what to do. So, so things like that. And uh, I think children responded differently to this. So that's another. There is no one strategy. And it's not like we've been. We have not had training on how do you help your children, you know, go through a war or stuff like that. So I think it was figuring things out as we go, trying to help them just basically uh, be with them. And when I say it was difficult, I mean, we were pretty much, now that I look back at this, we were pretty much in shock for the first several weeks, just with everything that was happening. And it's still kind of, it's an interesting journey. It's been three months now. It both feels like a very long time passed, like years has passed since the war started. But at the same time, everything happened very quickly. So I would say we are figuring this out. I don't have any kind of magic solutions it's not like we are doing Bible studies on implications of this every night. No, it's been really hard. Most of the good habits that we've been developing in years went through the window in the first few hours of the war. <laughs> so, so it was just trying to be sane, you know, to, to keep things going. And in a situation, uh, especially first, as if you remember, there were like idea, like no one knew how, how it's going to go. People were like, there were expectations that Kiev is going to fall in three days. So all, all kinds of stuff. And then just well, first there were like civilian targets were not really hit. But then I remember the first building, residential building in Kiev that was bombed. I, I don't know if you remember, but it was a high rise residential building with a big hole in the middle of it. So that building happened to be just next door to the birth hospital where all of, all of our kids were born. So we know the area very well. I mean, there is a cafeteria right by that building when Ani and I had uh, quite a bit of the, a lot of dates and so on. So that, that's what kind of brought it very close, like when you see some. Of course, there were many other much worse things uh, that happened after that. 
but that was the first like real image of this is gonna be bad like this is uh, this is going in a difficult direction I'm wondering Ruslan how do you live in that tension now between having your heart so you know obviously and in complete rightness uh, for what is happening to your people in Ukraine the churches in Ukraine and then you're also in Western Europe, you're trying to coordinate many, much response and care and compassion and, and you're living with this tension between the reconciling the internal journey of your own soul with uh, being a people of the kingdom of God in the midst of a time when your own people are suffering. How are you reconciling all those different kind of emotions and leadership challenges in this particular time? How is that feeling for you? What is that like? I think you said, you kind of said the word that is big these days is this tension. It's living in this tension. And, and again, I'm also very aware that this, uh, that our journey in, in some ways are easier, is easier. <laughs> now, like I said, we are not, you know, we have not been under bombings. We have not, you know, seen this uh, like uh, with our own eyes. We have not risked our lives as many did. I just give a story that kind of stuck in my mind. I have a good friend, actually several friends, that they they run a ministry in Kiev that focuses on disabled people and special needs, special needs uh, people and children. And they were evacuating a group of these people from Kiev on a train. It was, uh, I think it was uh, in March, uh, first months of the war, and, and the train was going in complete darkness because they, they couldn't use any sensor that they won't be targeted. And this lady, my friend, she says that they could see a jet, a Russian fighter, coming closer to the train and then shooting a missile at them. Fortunately, it missed. It, the missile hit the ground very close to the train. And then, and then they, they carried on. But can you just, just, just this one story, like you're going on a train in complete darkness and you kind of actually see what can kill you if, if, you know, if, if it hits. So, so things like that. And those stories kept coming. So going back to like how did we go through this, I mean, this tension is every day waking up to stories like this uh, or just seeing stories like seeing our niece apartment gone because the the building where she used to live in Kiev was hit and then just basically uh, burned down i mean also a huge high rise then uh, then begin and i think it became really hard when some people that we knew got killed for me it was the first time uh, it happened was uh, in Mariupol when a person that I uh, climbed Kilimanjaro years ago, <laughs> uh, a doctor uh, in his 60s, I learned that he got killed. And then uh, sometime later, we actually lost three relatives in Mariupol. My wife's family, extended family, is from Mariupol. There are still lots of relatives. And uh, it happened so that the one that we were closest with, Alina, who was 14 year old, she, her mom, and her older brother, all three of them got killed uh, by Russian troops in Mariupol. So this just kept, kind of kept adding and adding. But at the same time, it's it, another side of this tension is just increasingly seeing how the church was responding to this 
to this tragedy. That was encouraging part. So that's why I think it was never just the dark, dark story. I mean, it is very dark. It is very hard. But there was always, again, from the very first days of the war, there were always stories, examples, indications of God working through the church, uh, through various people in just some incredible ways to help others. So I think what it's not like, again, it's, it's not like there is a particular program that you follow in situation like this, and things become very simple. I think what helped was that the list of things that are important suddenly became very short. <laughs> like usually, you know, there are a lot of things you kind of care about, you're concerned about, and you, you can get anxious about, and, and now it's like, it's really short. <laughs> and you just focus on that. And then you also know that it's that there is no other way but just to really trust the Lord. Somehow, I, and I feel, I'm not saying that, like, maybe it's a bit unusual, but I did not struggle with question why. And, uh, and again, I don't, I don't really have explanation for this, <laughs> why I did not. But somehow, I, and I think it makes it a bit easier. Because, yes, really bad things happen. And you like, for example... I mentioned that we live about 20 minutes away from European and Bucha. And I don't know why people who live half an hour from us has gone through hell and lost their homes and lost their lives. And my town and my also, it's been difficult, but in a very different experience. I don't know. Like there was literally a line that divided people's experiences to very different journeys. Uh, I have friends who live in, in Europeans. So I, one of our pastors from our church spent 15 days with his wife and his son in a basement in European, uh, hiding from bombings and so on. So like, I don't know why. I don't know why. It's certainly not because they did something that we didn't do or, or sometimes it's just the way it works. So what we do is we just come to the Lord and say, Lord, just help us to go through this. I don't know the answers. I probably don't even need the answers. But just help us to take it step by step, both you know, as we process this, as we try to help others, and as we go through this as a family, you know, with wife, with kids. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I don't have any kind of secrets. It's just the simple things: focusing on Him, trying to be there for each other, and doing something, but also being careful not to think that in doing in this doing we kind of it's not it's not a like it's not like we can just do this and then ever since go away no so so just still trying to uh, to focus on relationships and so on so yeah so that's again I know I'm, I'm probably the trembling and but part of this is we are still in the middle of this while it's a different phase but it's still there it's not like Know, something bad happened and you are now trying to process it and come to terms with it. It happened, it is happening, and it's still going to happen. <laughs> so you are like in several phases of this at, at the same time. Wow, thank you, Rosalind, for sharing that. It 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 is probably very unique having to learn to balance between daily hearing horrific stories like what you were just describing. I couldn't imagine um, the real emotions of 
you used to live there and you're seeing places like where your children were born being bombed. And then also that God's called you out and he has this amazing call on your life. And your response to that is how encouraged you are with the way the church is responding. Can you share the ways in which you you have seen the church respond that is encouraging for you and that is continuing and, and where you are looking for the church to continue in that work or grow in that work? Yes, of course. And, and part of me, I almost wish... You know, I think we all now probably got used to go on the news and see something about Ukraine. It's still kind of, I mean, it still surprises me when I go to, you know, whatever news I go, Ukraine is right there. Maybe um, it's still to this day. So, and uh, I'm not happy about it. I kind of dream about Ukraine leaving, the, <laughs> you know, leaving the screens and the headlines. But what I wish, I wish that there was more about this. Uh, on the news. There are some, by the way, I mean, you could see some of these things, but there is so much that God is doing through the church that I wish there was more of more of that reported. And as I said, from the first day of the war, I think that's the amazing thing. And once we got involved, once, uh, you know, I started to connect in with people I know, with networks I know in Ukraine, once we as WA started to come alongside those networks, one of the outcome, like one of the not side effects, but sort of one of the things that happened was we started to get information, like get stories, what's going on in very different places, you know, in different churches, in different parts of Ukraine. And it's incredible. I mean, it just from, I, I would say that I don't know a church that has not responded right away in some way. One thing that I think people need to be more aware of is that while Nothing can really prepare you for something like this. But in some way, Ukrainian churches have been prepared because the war with Russia did not start in February. It started back in 2014 when Crimea was annexed and then when Russia sponsored the war in eastern uh, Ukraine. And it was pretty bad. Somehow it kind of went under the radar for most of people around the world. But I'll just give you this number. There was 1.5 million internally displaced people from Donbass and Lugansk back in 2014 and 15. And so we kind of had this happen on a smaller scale back then. And it was churches who were doing this, evacuating people, accommodating them, providing humanitarian aid, risking their lives. So, so there was, it now, now when I think about this, it was almost like a test run. I know it sounds horrible, but something like that. It was in a very real situation. But still, most of the country was peaceful, was fine. So it was localized war, but still pretty bad. Like in our church, I'm part of a fairly large church in a Kiev suburb. At the beginning of this war, we had hundreds of people from those areas of internally displaced people. And that's also turned into one of the less known tragedies of this war. So we have a lot of people who six or seven years ago fled the war in Donbass, let's say came to Kiev area. They started life from scratch because they left their homes, they left their businesses, they left their everything there, in most cases everything. And I mean, in five, six years, they were able to rebuild. And I'm not talking theoretically, I actually know people like that. And now they have to flee again. One of the ironies of this is that a lot of them actually came to European in Bucha because these are beautiful parts of, you know, Kiev suburbs, nice forests, just just good area. And my just heart is just, you know, it's it just feels so heavy for them. I cannot imagine people going through that two times in less than 10 years. 
So we have children growing up in that, like through that. So, but at the same time, again, churches were prepared because they had this experience. So a lot of them, they just, it kicked in right away and they started helping people to evacuate, providing humanitarian aid. Many churches turned into shelters right away because I mean, many thousands of people fled the first day. So they were helping to navigate this journey. They were providing all kinds of support. So I would say that the scope of what the church is doing in responding to this situation is, I, I, we probably will never know the true extent of this, but we are talking about a very significant response, very noticeable response. Along those lines, Ruslan, you're now, you and your family are part of a huge number, 6.5 million people, your, your fellow Ukrainians who have had to leave or, or have left Ukraine. What are you observing happening in the countries surrounding Ukraine in your work? How are you observing the church responding? Where are there those signs of hope for you now in other countries where so many Ukrainians who have been suffering are finding themselves? That's a great question because in a way, while there are, of course, borders, <laughs> like there is Ukraine, there is Poland, you know, Slovakia, Romania, and so on. But what I've seen and continue to see is that it's not only church in Ukraine that responded from the first day. It's churches in all those countries. I've been to Poland already, I think, four times uh, since the war started, and also to Slovakia and Hungary. And I see, uh, been in touch a lot with Christians in Romania and Moldova, and I see similar thing in all those places. From the very beginning of the war, churches started doing things that they, unlike many churches in Ukraine, they did not have any experience with this. So for many of them, it was very new. Suddenly, you know, people flooding across the border. So even meeting them at the border, uh, greeting them there, you know, providing them with some immediate response. I remember visiting a number of Polish churches in that border area that they would have. They would turn their sanctuaries in shelters. So you would see mattresses and beds. And and I, I, I still look at these pictures and part of me is like, this is how the church actually should look like. <laughs> I know that it sounds like a disruption, but what I've seen and witnessed and heard from all these countries and from Ukraine, is church really being the church? I, I don't want to diminish, like, of course, there is a normal life, you know, mean, uh, services and worship and gathering. And this is also church. But I think in some way we've seen the, the, part, the side of the church that makes it very tangible, like the, this idea of this is body of Christ, the idea of unity, idea of being, you know, feet and hands of Christ. This, this has become very real. And again, there are many stories. Uh, one church that really touched my heart on this is a church in Krakow, that while every church was doing, again, in Poland, as you know, Poland uh, is the country that received the largest number of refugees. And this church, first service after the war started, a person, a man came to their service, and then he said, I have a hotel outside Krakow. Can you use it for refugees? And they said, sure. And then out of that grew a major initiative to provide long-term care for refugees from Ukraine. And that one church of about 250 people, which is fairly large for Poland, but still 250 people, they provide full-time care for almost 1,000 refugees now across five facilities, which is like not twice as much as what they were doing before. It's 100 times as much as anything they've done, <laughs> they've done before. So what I've seen is churches 
not stepping out of comfort zone, but not being aware where that comfort zone is. Just They just went and do uh, whatever they could. Of course, now it's maybe more structured. So first, they all said that first several weeks were just 24-7 nonstop action. And I've seen that pretty much in all of the places I went. But it, but it continues. So this is, so I think, I, I've been, as I said, I've been in ministry for almost 30 years now and also serving around the world. But I think I can say, I wouldn't ask myself, Rosan, are you thinking this because you're Ukrainian? And I, I don't think so. I think that I can tr- try to be objective and I say, I've never seen the church being so responsive and so united around a uh, uh, common need and common respond to that need. What is peacemaking going to look like in the long term, Ruslan? It's going to be hard and, uh, because uh, I, if, if you mean peacemaking between Ukraine and, uh, Ukraine and Russia, uh, particularly, it's going to be hard. And, and here is uh, one, one of reasons why it's, it's so hard is because in this situation, while you know, there are many angles and many perspectives, and uh, but I think it's it's at this point now, especially three months after it started, it's also very clear we have an aggressor, we have a war of aggression. So so it's not like uh, it's not an equal situation. So of course we can talk a lot about the causes and so on, but that's that's the reality. And and we also have response. We have response of Ukrainians to this. We have we are seeing how let's say Poland responding or Hungarians or Romanians are responding. We see how Russians are responding too. So long story short, I think any kind of reconciliation would be possible, would should start or would start with repentance and repentance in this case. And and I don't see this happening yet. And I don't mean at an individual level. I know. People. I mean, there are some public uh, public uh, manifestations of this, including uh, Vitaly Vlasenko, who uh, published the letter, and there are some other prominent pastors and leaders in Russia, and of course people in Russia. But generally, uh, sort of uh, at, at its mass, we still see not only Russian government being aggressor and also doing uh, basically allowing and, and doing atrocities, but also we are seeing largely Russian people largely supporting that. So, so I think the road, so that's why I'm saying that reconciliation is going to be hard. And I would even at this point, I probably would say, I would consider this kind, I mean, this question a bit premature uh, at this point. And, and I'm going to use a harsh example for this. So my apologies, but that's how I'm thinking about this situation. If, if we are looking at a situation of an assault, let's say a rape, our first response, I think, is not how do you reconcile these people. Our first response is how do we protect? How do we, uh, how do we uh, either prevent that thing from happening or at least offer further protection and so on? And then after that, then... I mean, I know that you even cringe of thinking about reconciliation there, but at least there might be a way somehow to do that. But there will be important element of repentance, and then we don't, we would not put, we would not expect a person who suffered in that situation to kind of 
to be you know ready <laughs> to do that so so that's kind of that's 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 how i would suggest to look at this and uh, and uh, and we i think generally we need to be very discerning both timing and also what are the steps toward that so thank you for sharing that thank you know that type of honesty and, and comparison is very needed you know, it's interesting. Sometimes we, we sit and we think of, of situations in, say, point A and point B and point C, but the reality is we're in the middle of this right now. What I really appreciate hearing is just your thoughts on, on the church really being the church. And it, it's interesting to hear that in the middle of the chaos of the war, the pain, the destruction, that the Holy Spirit is interweaving levels of unity among your family, among churches, among um, different organizations, networking. So where do you see the Holy Spirit weaving through his unifying spirit? I think it's, uh, I mean, one thing is he is there. So, so that's what's hard to kind of sometimes reconcile. And it is hard, like when you are looking at all these kind of things that are happening, I think that's where uh, Buchanov has become the word that everyone knows, which is still kind of interesting for me because it's a fairly, like most of Ukrainians did not know Bucha until the war started. And now it became, became sort of a symbol of how bad things can get. But the reality is that there are many Buchas in Ukraine. And Mariupol, if he would have been able to to sort of to go through Mariupol in a way that we were able to go through Bucha, I think that again I don't want to compare because any tragedy is tragedy. That's another thing. It's not like there is you know I, I really don't want to compare. But but just the scope of this, uh, and we I'm a very bit more of this acutely because as I said we have relatives. My mother-in-law counted 42 relatives in Mariupol. And there are still about 15 that we don't know anything about them. I mean, two and a half months after after the, the siege started. So so it's kind of hard, like, the, in the middle of such a tragedy and pain and atrocities that, that we learn and that we know, and I'm almost more afraid of what I, we don't know than what we do, because usually, like in this kind of situation, yes, it would be safe to assume that we don't know more than we do. And... But going back to your question, but God is there. I mean, he's not surprised. I mean, Holy Spirit is there right in the middle of this, of this, this, uh, these things. And he's, he's working there. He's working in people's hearts. He's working in, in those situations. And, and uh, as I said, I mean, one way of looking at this is people risking and even losing their lives. I mean, there are a number of Christian uh, volunteers that has have been killed trying to serve others. I mean, there is one group that we are uh, we, we are in touch with that focuses specifically on evacuating children and uh, orphans, and they had three of their volunteers killed in Chernihiv region in a shelling. They, I mean, there another guy got killed when Kramatorsk was bombed. So, so when we when we say that. To serve others sometimes means risking and sacrifice. Like this is very real, but again, people are doing this because I mean they they see God in the midst in the middle of this, and also and and and, and unity in terms of again how like I mentioned before the list of things that are important got shorter 
So in a situation like this, we are forced to ask ourselves what really matters. And what really matters is that we are part of the body of Christ. And we are now in this kind of situation that we need to mobilize ourselves to come alongside each other. And not just in those who are close to this situation. One of the another encouraging side of this, from the very early in the early in the war, that was kind of unusual, not unusual, but sort of interesting part of this. Uh, there were many people asking me to to join a Zoom call or join a meeting and, and share about what's happening, how they can pray. And literally from all over the world, Brazil, Nigeria, you know, other countries of Latin America, Asia, North America. So for during that first month, there were hundreds and hundreds of people from all over the world that, uh, that, uh, that I talked with. And you could see, again, the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit leading people to pray. I think the amount of prayer is and was and is just incredible. So, so in those things, how people pray, how people respond, how people risk their lives. And of course, someone can say, well, I, I actually heard many people saying, you know, people are dying there and I'm just praying like it's not compared. But that's, that's, that's how it works in the body of Christ. There are different places, parts of it. There are different functions of it. But the strength is that each of us can do something. And, and, and again, it's, often we don't get to choose. Like we don't get to choose if we're gonna be on the very front line of situation like this, or we're gonna be literally all 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 around like halfway around the world, just praying about it. But both of those is is manifestation of Holy Spirit working and of the unity in the body of Christ. Well, Ruslan, you definitely are doing something and helping us have this wonderful wide perspective. Thank you so much for joining us on the All Things Reconciled podcast today. Well, thank you. Thank you again for having me. And I just would also ask you and everybody who listens, please continue pray. I know it's hard to sustain prayer for that long, but uh, we really need it. Uh, and so please pray. Pray for Ukraine. Pray for people who are soft, still suffering there. Pray for people who serve others. Pray for people in Russia who are suffering too. And pray for people uh, around the world that this that God will work through this tragedy in a way that he only can to continue to advance his kingdom and spread the gospel. Well, Jeanette, so much in what Ruslan shared with us. What's stirring in you? I feel right now two sides. The honesty in which he approached the future of reconciliation and the fact that this is a continuing war right now. There's a lot of aggression and um, there's a lot of pain. So much has occurred and it's not something that will easily be brought to the table, discussed over and move forward with and understanding that peacemaking and reconciliation is messy. But then on the other hand, this desire for the global church to continue praying that he has witnessed and been a part of the powerful effects of prayer. And so it might seem like over here in the West, we're not doing a lot, but actually we are active participants in the body of Christ and in the church, both here and in Ukraine, when we participate together in prayer. Yeah, those things move me as well. And also his sense of the small things. 
that you can't choose necessarily where you find yourself in a certain conflict or place that needs shalom and healing and all those good things that it's work it's a battle itself to be striving for that but there's also a deep sense of that everybody has a call in that from prayerfulness to people who are helping orphans and the variety of ways in which the body of Christ is involved in this. So we're all kind of in it together. This is all our work. That was very inspiring to me. Wow, lots to process. So we thank Ruslan Maluta for joining us today and to the EFC for helping us pull this together. And thank you, friends, for listening to the All Things Reconciled podcast of the Peace and Reconciliation Network. I'm Phil Wagler. And I'm Jeanette Bloom. Please tell your friends and even enemies about this podcast and other great EFC podcasts. You can follow our PRN on Facebook. Donate to this work through the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada using the code WEAPRN or check out our website at reconciledworld.net. Go in peace today. And go make peace every day.